The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and we've got a great show for you today. One that I think will be really interesting and very important for everyone, especially for people who either practice pediatric anesthesiology or are parents or are pediatricians or have kids or have friends who have kids. So lots and lots of people who will be really interested in this. And I have a great guest, Dr. Rita Senelath, who is a pediatric anesthesiology uh, pediatric anesthesiologist at UT Southwestern and Children's Health. She's also the Associate Director of Pediatric Clinical Research there. And she's really developed this interest in thinking about pediatric URIs and upper respiratory infections in general and how to decide how to handle these around surgery. And so I'm really thrilled to have her here to talk about it. Rita, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ed. I'm so excited to be here. So start by telling us a little bit about you, how your career developed, how you got interested in pediatric anesthesia as a specialty, and then how you developed this specific interest in this area that we're going to talk about today. Yes, of course. Um, so I started uh, medical school in Galveston, and that's when I first got interested in anesthesiology. Um, just found it fascinating to be able to both use your brain, um, thinking about pharmacology as well as just physiology, pathology. Um, and also using your hands because we do a lot of procedures. We do intubations, we do lines. Um, and so it's just a, a nice combination, um, in my opinion, of both. Um, then when I was in residency, I was introduced to pediatric anesthesiology, and I found it fascinating because you can do an appy in a two-year-old, and you would do it completely different than an appy in a 16-year-old. So there's no quote-unquote recipe that you're going to use. Every kid is different, even if they're having the same surgery. So I found that um, very interesting. And then when COVID hit, uh, we started talking about how COVID impacts our children, especially when they present for surgery. So we started at my institution um, looking at adverse events in kids with COVID compared to kids who didn't have COVID. And then it just turned into, let's look at all the URIs. Let's, we have uh, mandatory preoperative viral testing. We have data that we would never have otherwise because it's quite costly to do mandatory preoperative testing. But in the era of COVID, it was just something that was done. So it gave us an opportunity to study that even more. That's fabulous. And, you know, I think this is such a good example of when you have this kind of 
mindset around learning and trying to develop new areas of interest and trying to find answer questions, you know, you look for opportunities and that's what you saw, right? There was not an easy way to do this. And then COVID happened, which was a tragedy in a lot of ways, but also an opportunity. You saw that opportunity and you took it, which I think is a great lesson for people to always keep your eye out for times where something may fall into your lap and you may be able to answer a question that you couldn't or maybe nobody could answer before. So really interesting that you took that tack. What, you know, I remember back when I was a medical student and resident, this was this this constant thing, right? You had to, kids coming for anesthesia and surgery are so often, I mean, I have kids, they, they're always coughing or sneezing or, you know, they've got something. So I, I remember being kind of having the conversation, well, you can't, you can't always put off surgery for a kid who's got a cough because they're always going to have a cough and they'll never have the surgery. And, I, you know, I'm sure there are some guidelines around this, but tell me a little bit about why do we care, right? So why, why are we even talking about this? It clearly can't be that we can just ignore any kid with a URI or else we wouldn't be talking about it. So why do we care about URIs and how do we figure out whether it matters or not? Yeah, that's a great question, Jen. So way back then in 1979, really, is when we had um, the first few articles in the pediatric anesthesia literature talking about an increased risk of respiratory complications in children with a history of respiratory tract infections that need anesthesia. And then um, Tate is a name that you'll see a lot in the literature. He started looking at the prevalence of intraoperative respiratory complications. And we're talking about laryngospasm, bronchospasm, strider, breath holding type of complications. Looking at kids that have URI, whether they, they are symptomatic or asymptomatic. And they found that asymptomatic patients that had a recent history of URI within the prior two weeks had a significantly higher rate of complications. And so that started the discussion of how safe is it to do general anesthesia in a kid with a URI. Another name and number that is very um, quoted very often is Cohen, who back in 1991 did a prospective study to look at morbidity and mortality, again, in children with and without URI. And they found that children with the URI were two to seven times more likely to have a respiratory adverse event. And the risk was increased 11-fold if the child was intubated, regardless of age, ESA score, surgical site, or emergency status of the surgery. And so that 11-fold number is the one that you will see quoted a lot, and that's the one that raises concern because that is a pretty significant increase in risk. Um, and as we know, some surgeries require an endotracheal intubation. You can't get away with nasal cannula or an LMA. So a lot of um, articles have come out about basically just kids being at higher risk. And then people started looking at risk factors and what you can do to uh, minimize or prevent adverse events when these kids need surgery. And Rita, let me ask you, you know, it, it sort of seems obvious, I guess, a kid who has a URI and they get intubated, positive pressure ventilation, maybe high levels of oxygen. There's lots of things that could make them at higher risk for complications in the setting of a URI. But do we know what it is specifically? Like, why is being intubated bad for someone who has a URI? We, we know that it is bad, but why is it bad? Do we know? Maybe we don't know. 
Um, what I always tell my parents is just airway hyperreactivity. When you are sick, when you are currently fighting um, a respiratory virus or even recovering from a respiratory virus, your airways will remain hyperreactive for the next two to six weeks, depending on the type of virus that you have, depending on whether you have lingering symptoms or if your symptoms have completely resolved. And we know that volatile anesthetics can be quite pungent to the airway. And that's why just a simple inhalation induction can send you into bronchospasm or laryngospasm. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're taking something that's already pro- already irritated and prone to being even more irritated, and then you're exposing it to irritants. And that is not a good recipe. Okay, so, you know, if we know that within two weeks of having a URI, there's this elevated risk, then the temptation I would think would be to say, okay, no surgery, no, or at least no endotracheal intubation within two weeks. But what do we do for kids who kind of always have these symptoms? Yeah, so um, good question. You'd have to see, are they different from their baseline? Um, have they, do they have additional symptoms? Do they have fever? We actually did a study um, here at our institution when, again, we had the mandatory preoperative testing, and we were able to look at all the kids that came to the OR who tested positive for any sort of virus. So our respiratory viral panel looks at 19 different respiratory viruses, including covid um, so, again, great source of data for us um, as we looked at, um, uh, obviously, we had criteria, you know, not the super sick kids, organ transplant, that kind of stuff. Um, and we just wanted to see if the presence of URI symptoms was associated with the occurrence of PREY, which is a, another word that you'll see in the pediatric literature. It stands for perioperative respiratory adverse events, so P-R-A-E by Britta von Ungern Sternberg. She is from Australia, a pediatric anesthesiologist from Australia who is considered one of the main experts in this area, has published many, many articles about this. So again, we looked at the risk of prey in kids that tested positive preoperatively, and we also wanted to compare the SARS-CoV-2 virus versus the non-SARS-CoV-2 viruses. And interestingly, we found that the risk of prey was similar in the symptomatic and asymptomatic cohorts. We were not expecting that. Um, there was also no difference between children with SARS-CoV-2 compared to non-SARS-CoV-2 respiratory viruses, but our study was done and the, with the Omicron variant, so not the original variant that we know is more severe, causes more complications. Uh, we did find that the risk of prey was increased in children with a fever documented within 48 hours of the anesthetic. So, yes, if a kid is always sick, always has some sort of respiratory symptoms, I think one simple question to ask the family is if they've had fever recently. Um, we know from this data that that does increase your risk. Okay, that's great to know. So let's take a kid who is having a completely elective surgery, and they have had, let's say they've the parent says, yep, they've been coughing and, you know, um, sneezing, et cetera, for the past uh, it, within a week, but uh, they have not had a fever in the past 48 hours. Do you take that kid to surgery or do you, or do you delay? Yeah, and that's hard because I feel like a lot of time we'll be like, oh, that sounds like seasonal allergies. We don't really know if it's really a viral URI. And uh, you might not know until you get into the operating room and get some sort of complication. Um, so there's different risk factors that you can look at. Um, Tate, which is uh, one of the uh, researchers that I mentioned earlier, looked at risk factors for these adverse respiratory events. And he came up with a list of independent risk factors, copious secretions, which we know, obviously, 
very snotty nose is going to raise a red flag. Uh, again, use of an androtrical tube in a younger child, less than five years of age. History of prematurity, because we know that their airways are a little different because they came out too early. History of nasal congestion, history of reactive airway disease, um, but also history of paternal smoking. And I think that's pretty easy to understand. Just exposure to secondhand smoke will make your airways not so great. Uh, and finally, surgery involving the airway, obviously higher risk because the airway is already irritated and uh, the surgeon is messing with it. Um, and then uh, Britta von Ungern-Sternberg um, wrote this very, very uh, important article that was published in The Lancet in 2010. And I think it's one of the most well-known articles looking at URI and children and risk factors for prey. And she found that uh, looking at associations between family history, anesthesia management, and the occurrence of prey, she found that a positive respiratory history is a better predictor for the occurrence of prey than the ASA physical status score that we use every day. And what she means by a positive respiratory history, it includes nocturnal dry cough, wheezing during exercise, wheezing greater than three times in 12 months, and history of present or past eczema. So again, very simple questions that you can ask in the preoperative area. Nocturnal dry cough, wheezing, and that will raise a red flag. She also found that there was an increased risk of prey with the presence or recent history of URI symptoms, as we said, within two weeks. Again, not something new. Um, and a history of at least two family members with asthma, ATP, or smoking also increased the risk of prey. So I feel like we're not very good about asking about family history um, in our anesthesia preoperative assessment. We have at Children's, we have great uh, preoperative nurse practitioners that will get a thorough history. But I think that taking the two seconds to focus on a family history of asthma, ATP, or smoking will also help you with your management because you can gauge if they are at higher risk. Okay, great. So you're, so maybe that kid I laid out who no fever, but yep. yes, URI symptoms in the past two weeks, you kind of maybe do that history to see are they at yep. higher risk because maybe, you know, they're smoking in the household and maybe they have asthma yep. history, et cetera. And if they have those higher risk factors, maybe then you delay. If they don't have them, maybe you go ahead. Exactly. Okay. Now, is it accurate to say that for a total, totally elective operation, if they have had a fever in the past 48 hours with URI symptoms, then do you, do you say, well, let's wait, that's not a good idea to go forward? Yes, most definitely. Okay. And usually our surgeons are on the same page with us about that, especially with the presence of fever. Great. Now, does it matter, let's say that the surgery is not going to require an endotracheal tube. Maybe you can do it under spinal or something like that. Would, you, would that change the calculus here or not? So um, in pediatric anesthesia, I don't know a lot of my colleagues who will do uh, spinal. Um, I know the gas trial came out where they did just the spinal, but it is not, I don't think it's something that is very common practice, especially with the younger kids, because they're still going to wiggle around. You can't really talk to them and tell them to stay still like you can in adults. So we are stuck in the situation that most likely they'll need some sort of general anesthesia, whether or not you manage the airway. Okay. And let's say... Again, I, I'm talking obviously from an adult perspective, so maybe I'm, I'm completely off the mark. But what if you could do, you know, regional and sedation? Is that a thing in kids like we do in adults where you might do a spinal with some, but they're breathing on their own and won't need an endotracheal tube? Is, if, can you do that in kids? And if so, is that something that makes this less risky or still because you might end up having to put a tube in, you still want to avoid it? 
Yeah, I think the tricky part is because if your sedation gets a little too deep and you have to manipulate the airway, then you're in a tough situation. Great. Okay. So we kind of have narrowed this down, right? If a fever within 48 hours and a URI symptoms, then we're, we're going to wait. If it's in between, you know, uh, no fever, but URI symptoms in the past couple of weeks, then we're going to look at those other risk factors to help us determine whether to go forward. Now, this is all for elective surgery. Let's say you've got an emergent surgery. You can't put it off. Yep. You got to go. All right. So now what are yep. you going to do to manage the kid who has to have an endotracheal tube in surgery, but they yep. have had it all, the URI symptoms, the fever, everything, you, but you can't yep. wait. It's emergent. So what are you going to do? So one interesting trial, again, from Britta von Ungern-Sternberg, I told you she wrote a lot about this topic. Um, it was the REACT trial, and that stands for Reducing Anesthetic Complications in Children Undergoing Tonsillectomies. It was a randomized, triple-blind, placebo-controlled trial to determine whether inhaled albuterol pre-medication decreases the risk of prey in children undergoing anesthesia for tonsillectomy. So it seems intuitive. Albuterols, you're going to make the lungs better, of course. Why not? So they found that a higher risk of prey with an odds ratio of 2.8 in the placebo group compared to albuterol after adjusting for age, type of airway device, and severity of OSA. So I would recommend doing an albuterol pre-medication. There's another study that came out of France that looked at nebulized budesonide one hour prior to going to the operating room. Um, it's a nice idea. I don't think it's something that we routinely use, uh, at least at my institution. I don't know if it's a more of a European thing, um, but something interesting to think about. Um, and then as far as using an endotracheal tube versus an LMA, there was a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials done by De Carvalho in 2018. And they were just trying to compare the risk of prey among different airway devices because, like we said, sometimes it's urgent. You have to go. Um, and it'd be interesting to know if you would decrease your risk if you try to get away with an LMA as opposed to using an endotracheal tube. But they found no statistical difference regarding laryngospasm arterial oxygen desaturation, and breath holding or apnea between the LMA and endotracheal tube cohorts. But again, this is hard. It's a lot of different studies. You look at different conflicting results depending on which study you're focusing on. Um, and they did find a decreased incidence of cough when an LMA was used compared to an endotracheal tube. I think kind of makes sense. It doesn't go as deep as the endotracheal tube. Uh, but again, they keep mentioning that it's a low quality of evidence. And so depending on what study you look at, some will say increased risk of cough, some will say same, some will say decreased. But their main conclusions were no statistical difference um, in the main adverse events that we are interested in and decreased incidence of cough with an LMA. Interesting. Now, the other question I have is, what about choice of anesthetic? So does it matter SIVO versus ISO versus desflurane or... What about propofol, Tiva with no gas? Uh, did, you know, does that matter or do we know the answer to that? It does, actually. Uh, more studies coming out of Australia. <laughs> so uh, Ram Gilliam did a study in 2018, a randomized control trial, looking at the induction technique and how it affects the occurrence of prey in high-risk children. So they found an increased risk of prey when induction was done with inhaled sevoflurane compared to intravenous propofol after adjustment for age, sex, ASA physical status score, and weight. 
Um, they did note that there was no difference in relative risk of prey between the two cohorts in children who did not report any respiratory symptoms. But if you looked at your symptomatic children, there was an increased risk if they underwent an inhalation induction. So for induction, um, IV propofol, again, makes sense. You don't have the pungent volatile anesthetic assaulting your airway. And then as far as maintenance, um, this is from the Lancet study from 2010 from Brita. And they found an increased risk of prey when maintenance of anesthesia, anesthesia was achieved with inhaled sevoflurane compared to an intravenous propofol infusion. And I think it's just the same rationale about um, keeping your airway happy by not using a volatile anesthetic. If you are dead set on using a volatile anesthetic or your institution does not have the resources to run a TIVA, um, then we know that choosing sevoflurane over desflurane would lead to a decreased risk of prey because we know that desflurane is so irritating. And isoflurane is a strong bronchodilator, so as expected, you'd have a decreased incidence of bronchospasm with that. Great. So am I right to say that if you have to go in one of these kids and you want to minimize the risk of having complications or having prey, then you're going to give maybe some albuterol pre-med. You might yep. consider budesonide pre-med if you have it and if you're comfortable doing that. Um, and then you ideally, this might be a kid who you really try to get an IV. And even though I know in kids, my memory, it's been a long time, but it's, you know, we usually don't uh, in the little ones. But maybe in, in these, you know, situation, you, you say that the benefits of getting that IV are, are significant. So maybe you try to get the IV so you can do a propofol induction and then you consider doing a TIVA instead of using uh, inhaled anesthetic. Um, and that's kind of, if you, ha if, you can, if you can do all that, you're at least minimizing the risk of prey. Yes, you are optimizing um, everything that you possibly can to hopefully not have any prey. And right. I feel like emergent cases either are inpatient or come through the ER. So they should be coming up with an IV anyways, even if they're little. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, this is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having Factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. All right, and we're back. When we have these kids uh, who, let's say, need not emergent, but urgent, so you can't put it off. Let's say they've had, the, we've got the kid, they've got the URI, they've had, um, you know, a fever in the past couple of days. You can't put it off for two weeks because it's pretty urgent, but you could put it off for a day or two. Now, am I right that if you could, if they're now afebrile and you can get outside the 48-hour window, maybe there's some evidence that, that might be helpful. Let's say, yeah. though, that, Let's say it's been 72 hours since the fever. 
Is there any advantage in waiting, you know, five days as opposed to four? Like, is, you know, do you want to put it off a couple days if you can, or we don't know? You just, once you're outside the 48 hour window, if you can't get to two weeks, you, you just go. We don't have definitive evidence for uh, the actual number of days that you should wait to optimize their uh, or minimize the risk of prey. I would think that if their symptoms are resolving because you waited five days as opposed to going straight away, then you would be in a much better place. They're they're less likely to cough on the tube to where you can't get it out because they're not taking adequate tidal volumes or they're less likely to have just the reactive airway that we talked about. And then is there any benefit let's say you've got a kid who's super high risk and maybe they're even having brought you you hear the wheezing while they're still intubated right before you're you, before the case is done you know maybe you're treating with some albuterol through the tube and you know is there any time where you might say you know what we're not going to extubate this kid is too high risk for them bronchospasming or laryngospasming once we take the tube out we're going to take them to the icu leave them intubated and kind of very slowly wean things off is that a thing or not Yes, definitely. And it's something that I always tell my parents, if I have a kid that has symptoms of a URI and we decide that it's emergent or the parents really want to go, despite me going through all the risk, I will always tell them that there's a chance that we can't get that breathing tube out again because of that coughing and not taking adequate tidal volumes that we talked about, just reactive airways to where they would not be doing well if you remove that breathing tube. So yes, definitely would keep that in. Go to the ICU, obviously it's not ideal to have prolonged mechanical ventilation, but it just would not be safe to remove that breathing tube. Okay. Now let's say your plan is to take it out. Is there anything that you can do to kind of, you know, you're already there, you've, you've done the surgery, the tube's in, the kid was high risk. Is there anything you can do to minimize the risk of prey before you take the tube out? Like, do you do one more dose of albuterol before you pull it out? Do you squirt some lidocaine down there? You know, is there any, I, I had an attending when I was a resident who used to fill the endotracheal tube balloon with lidocaine um, because he thought it would, you know, leach out into the surrounding mucosa and make it less likely to, to be irritable. You know, what can we do, if anything, to prevent the risk of, of uh, something bad happening once the tube comes out? Yeah, I definitely remember that from my adult days. And it's interesting because Britta looked at this issue and she found an increased risk of prey when you are using LTA lidocaine when you intubate the patient. Interesting. Um, so the thought is that you, with a lidocaine, you're attenuating the neurally mediated reflexes that provoke bronchoconstriction. And that's why you spray the cores before you put the endotracheal tube in. But in her study, uh, and again, that's the that Lancet study, she found an increased incidence of laryngospasm and bronchospasm with LTA lidocaine. And they said maybe it was due to a potential increase in airway tone after administration of aerosolized lidocaine. Uh, from my personal practice, I do feel like when I try to use LTA lidocaine, sometimes they will become reactive and they'll start coughing and then you have to come out because you can't safely keep the blade in the mouth. Um, and there's another study that came out in 2012 um, that looked, it was a prospective audit of a thousand pediatric patients um, that was receiving general anesthesia without neuromuscular blockade. And they looked at the frequency of prey with the use of topical airway lidocaine. Now, in this study, they didn't have URI symptoms, but I still think it's an interesting conclusion. They found a higher incidence of desaturation and a cohort who received topical airway lidocaine. And there was no difference in the incidence of laryngospasm or severe cough between the two cohorts. So after looking at all that evidence, I really don't feel strongly about LTA lidocaine, at least during intubation. Uh, as far as what you're going to do to extubate your patient safely, there is 
study, um, again from Britta, 2013, randomized control trial looking at the occurrence of prey um, in children undergoing elective adenotonsillectomy and looking at if you extubate them deep versus extubate them fully awake. But they actually found no data that the cohort that was extubated awake had an increased incidence of persistent coughing, which makes sense. And the cohort that was extubated deep had an increased incidence of airway obstruction, but it was really by simple airway maneuvers. Nothing crazy didn't have to be reintubated or anything like that. So uh, it's more of your choice, what you are more comfortable with, um, which one you're more comfortable managing if it does not go well. But the evidence is not strongly for one versus the other as far as taking that breathing tube out awake or deep. Okay. How about um, albuterol? Anything around putting, giving another dose down the tube before you pull it out or no? I did not read anything about that, but I don't think that it would be a bad idea. Great. All right. So, and a lot of them will get albuterol in the recovery room as well. Absolutely. Um, all right. Is there anything else um, that you know you would recommend people try to do to optimize these patients, either intraoperative or or immediately postoperative in the PACU? You know, given if they were high risk or they had a URI preoperatively. Um, no, I think we've covered most of it. Um, uh, and I would just emphasize that it's important for them to be deep enough when you manipulate the airway for, uh, when you first go in to intubate them because you want to really manage them through stage two. That's the time that can really give you trouble. Right. So let's go back to this idea. You know, during COVID, you were testing everyone because we were all testing everyone for COVID. Um, now that we don't have to do that, do you think there's any benefit in testing every kid preoperatively for viruses or not? That's a great question. So um, there's different um, conclusions when you look at the literature, depending on who is looking at the issue. If you have surgeons looking at the issue, um, especially ENT surgeons, uh, because those will most likely be the kids that have some sort of URI symptoms and they just absolutely need their tonsils out or ear tubes or whatnot. So there's actually two studies that came out of the pediatric ENT literature. Um, the first one was done by Niermeyer and uh, 2020, and he did a retrospective chart review to examine whether positive RVP testing is associated with perioperative complications, as well as operative findings in pediatric patients undergoing direct laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy. So as we know, very, very stimulating because they're literally in the airway. And he found that RVP positivity and the presence of URI symptoms were not associated with perioperative complications. And he also noted that major complications were rare. And then another surgeon, Vickers, did a prospective cohort study to determine whether the presence of detectable URIs at the time of outpatient adenoidectomy or adenotonsillectomy is associated with increased morbidity, complications, and unexpected admissions. What's interesting about his cohort of patients is that 82.9% of patients tested positive for at least one virus, which seems quite high. Uh, but they did not find significant differences in respiratory complications, admission rates, or length of PACU stay between the patients who tested positive and those who tested negative. So from a surgical perspective, they said there's no utility in preoperative testing for URI, and delaying surgery due to a recent positive URI test is not warranted in this population. But again, that's outpatient ENT surgery. So 
very specific criteria that you have to meet to be able to have ENT surgery in an outpatient setting. Also, if you really um, look into the studies, there was no definitions for each of the respiratory complications because they are writing this from a surgeon perspective and not an anesthesiologist perspective. So in our anesthesiology studies for prey, we are very diligent about defining Laryngospasm. What's laryngospasm? Well, how do you define bronchospasm? Is it hypoxia for greater than five minutes? Is it less than 95%, less than 90%? And that kind of details was just not found in the surgical literature. Uh, and so then we um, did our part to justify um, the high cost of mandatory pre operative testing. So like, um, it was mandatory. It was necessary during the COVID pandemic, but now that it's a different times, so I don't think that we can, our hospital can't justify that. Okay. So even though there might be some benefit, it's probably not enough to justify universal testing. Correct. And so one thing that we are looking into and discussing with our ENT surgeons, if it would be worth it to um, identify high-risk patients uh, getting ENT surgery and do mandatory preoperative testing in just that specific cohort of patients and seeing if it affects oral occurrence of prey. But we have not gone quite that far yet. Okay, interesting. And then I know we talked about this a little before, but does it matter? Do we think it matters what virus you have? It sounds like not really, right? In that in that data you cited before, there wasn't necessarily one virus that was worse than another. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of um, data on RSV. So I know at my institution, we're more conservative. If you have um, tests that came back positive for RSV and you wait the full six weeks, uh, if it's an elective surgery and you can't wait that long. If it's COVID, then you also wait six weeks. But again, that was based from the literature that came out from the original variant um, and not these later variants that are not as severe. Um, there is a retrospective case control study that was done looking at RSV and influenza infection um, and how it affected perioperative outcomes in children undergoing general anesthesia. And they, um, in that cohort, interestingly, 50% of the infected patients had respiratory symptoms preoperatively. And the authors found that patients with influenza, even when they were asymptomatic, had a longer postoperative length of hospital stay. And patients with RSV or influenza were at increased risk for an unplanned admission to the ICU. Interestingly, there was no differences in perioperative adverse events or need for prolonged postoperative positive pressure ventilation. Um, and then we also know, again, with COVID, um, the main studies that uh, came out for the pediatric literature were back in um, early 2021. So again, that original variant, the first study um, by Cronin um, came out in 2021, and it was a single center retrospective match cohort study looking at kids who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 under one general anesthesia, matched them at a one-to-two ratio, and they found a high risk of immediate post-anesthesia complications. 26% uh, of SARS-CoV-2 cases had complications compared to 1% of controls, and so that gave them an odds ratio of 18, which is pretty significant. But there were no deaths reported within 30 days of the procedure in either cohort. 
And then interestingly, we had done the similar study that I had told you about, um, right? Um, towards the end of 2020 uh, is when we started looking at that at our institution and the study design was very similar, even though we had not talked um, to that other group, but we found uh, that a positive SARS-CoV-2 test was associated with a higher incidence of prey with a risk difference of 10.8% and a higher incidence of any complications with a risk difference of 10.7%. And then after adjustment uh, for confounding, we found that the odds ratio remained significantly higher for respiratory complications among COVID-positive patients compared to match controls with an odds ratio of 14.37, so also pretty high. So most, I feel like most of the studies will look at COVID because it was such um, high interest. Um, and we'll look at flu and RSV because we always say, oh my goodness, RSV is so bad. That's the really bad virus and you really have to uh, wait longer so that you decrease your risk of complications. Um, and then in our prospective study, uh, when we looked at the, the cohort of patients that had mandatory preoperative viral testing, we looked at the different types of viruses trying to compare SARS-CoV-2 versus non-SARS-CoV-2 viruses. And we actually found that infection with rhinovirus enterovirus, which are not differentiated in our respiratory viral panel at my institution. So that's why they're lumped in together. But rhinoentero will give an increased odds of prey compared to other viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, non-SARS coronavirus, and influenza A or B. Now, I can't speak for RSV because interestingly, in the time period that we were looking at, we did not have um, a lot of RSV patients at all. So can't comment on that. But we thought it was pretty interesting that rhinoentero was um, higher risk of prey because it always seems like rhinoentero is the mild um, common cold virus that everybody gets. Every kid that's at daycare or elementary school, usually they'll get rhinoentero and we're so used to seeing that. So interesting. So I had this wrong then, obviously, and I'm glad we clarified this. So it does matter, it sounds like, what virus it is. And I guess this takes us back to the idea of testing, right? So if, if we think the virus matters, it seems like there actually might be some advantage in knowing what virus a kid might have, but maybe not yet. I mean, so, you know, tell me, if, it sounds like if we know a kid, maybe they had testing at their pediatri pediatrician's office or something, if you know they've had RSV or COVID, or influenza, then maybe it makes sense to postpone longer. It sounds like from your data, there might actually be some other viruses that would fit in that category, but those are probably not things they're getting routinely tested for. And you think it's, there's probably not enough data yet to say we're going to test everybody, maybe outside specific Correct. populations like the uh, people having airway surgery. Yes. And so if they go to urgent care, um, usually they'll get the COVID flu test. It's, I think it's mainly if they come to our hospital that they will get the full respiratory viral panel that tests for those 19 different viruses. We do use it um, when we decide to cancel preoperatively. We do give the parents the option of swabbing for the full RVP because it does help um, guide the rescheduling timeline like we talked about. So we do offer that to them. Okay. So tell me if I'm putting this together correctly. If a kid has a recent URI, meaning in the past couple of weeks, and they have not, they don't have any major risk factors and they have not had a fever in 48 hours, we're not going to test. We're just going to go ahead and probably be a little more careful, but we were okay with that. If they 
have had a recent test that has been positive for COVID or for influenza or for RSV, then we might delay up to six weeks. If they have, for whatever reason, they get a respiratory virus panel and they have one of these other viruses that you mentioned, uh, enter, uh, don't remember what they were, but... Uh, Rhino, enero, or non-SARS coronaviruses are the common ones that we see. And so we're more likely to do like four weeks should be okay. Four weeks for those. Okay. So really we're looking at uh, two weeks. If they, you know, you might delay two weeks if they've got risk factors or if they have recent fever, you might do four weeks for some of these non-flu, non-RSV, non-COVID viruses, and then six weeks for flu, COVID, RSV. Yeah, some will do four weeks for flu, but really it depends on how bad their symptoms are and how they look. It's an easy indication when you see them in the preoperative area, if you have like a six or a seven-year-old and you're just sitting there not moving, eyes kind of looking down and just not looking good. They just look fatigued. They don't look like a normal kid that's usually active and jumping around. And I'll ask mom and dad, uh, are they playing normally at home? Are they eating normally? Because the appetite and activity levels will be a good indication of how poorly they feel. They feel, And so I might tend to wait a bit longer if they feel poorly, knowing that it'll take longer for the symptoms to resolve. Okay, that makes a ton of sense. Great. All right. Is there anything, Rita, that we did not cover that you think we should? I think we've covered most of it. Fabulous. All right. Well, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Is there something you would recommend the audience check out for fun? Oh, well, you know, I'm a very big Backstreet Boys fan, and people might think that Backstreet Boys are so 1990s or early 2000, but they've actually always been around. They've coming out. They're They've been coming out with new music. They've been touring the world, not just the U.S., but the entire world. So I would recommend that if you're a bit nostalgic for the 1990s, you might tune in to the new Backstreet songs. Nice. Well, I'll tell you, I'm always nostalgic for 1990s music, so I will definitely <laughs> check it out. Um, that's awesome. I'm going to recommend, uh, so I don't know if folks listen to This American Life. It's a great podcast. Um, they've been around forever. Their most recent episode is number 823. So they've been doing this a very long time. But the uh, episode 823 is called The Question Trap. And if you, uh, you can listen to the whole thing, but I highly recommend listening to Act Two. It starts around 17 minutes into the show and it lasts about 12 minutes. And it is such an interesting, in some ways hilarious, in some ways really um, just uh, kind of heartwarming, but it's a, a fabulous story. It's a true story. And I, I don't want to give it away. I'll just say that it is, uh, in, in at least one piece of it, is one of the most profound foot-in-your-mouth stories that you'll ever hear. Uh, and it's hilarious in that way, but also um, sad and, and profound and then with a happy ending. So anyway, all in 12 minutes. I would recommend, if nothing else, listen to This American Life, episode 823, act two, from about minute 17 to minute 29 or so. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. All right, Rita, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Jed. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well.
If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Doctors April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.